Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I have as my guest Arjuna Ishaya. He's a monk and meditation teacher. We're going to be exploring how do you find direction in life? What do you really want? What are my true priorities? What in my life am I compromising over? Am I following the herd? Am I failing to appreciate the moment? Am I always dissatisfied with my loss? Do I ever have enough? Am I inviting honest criticism and feedback and observation? Or am I letting my ego get in the way? And am I failing to be the person I say I want to be? Am I losing my sense of humor? So these are all sorts of topics that we're going to be covering today. So Arjuna, welcome, first of all. Thank you very much. I didn't, I didn't realize it was called the Inquisitor. You put me on edge right away. <laughs> well, I've, I'm desperately trying to get the music from the old Dick Barton theme tune because they used it in Monty Python for when the Spanish Inquisition arrived. <laughs> but no one's responding, which I'm finding very disappointing. <laughs> Brilliant. No, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Well, you, certainly you don't sound like a Buddhist monk. So would you mind giving us um, a quick rundown on your background so that we've got a bit of context? Sure. How, how does a Buddhist monk sound like? <laughs> well, well, one doesn't expect them to sound like a Kiwi first. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kiwis aren't monks. No. <laughs> well, they're not necessarily, but it's not my stereotype. So let's, let's run with the fact that my biases are coming into this. No, perfect. Because <laughs> that was my thing too when I was, I'm not a monk. Who wants to become a monk? That's boring. That's, that's going to go live in a cave. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, it's just good to know this stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, I am from New Zealand. I'm living in the UK now with my family, but I was an outdoor instructor and living in a beautiful place, surrounded by mountains, doing the things I love to do. And I threw it away to join the, the monk circus, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> what was your moment of inspiration where you finally realized that that was your calling? I think it was building. I think it was a case of really... I was never interested in the rat race, but I was very interested in personal development, in uh, psychology, in in that kind of coaching where, for me, outdoor instruction was was a case of skills and physical attributes, but it was also whispering mind people um, confidence, uh, self esteem, fear and doubt. It was it was all that realm in myself and my friends and my co- and my clients. So it, it was a it was realizing that life, I had life, everything that I wanted. I had the possessions, the career, the stuff, but I, it didn't add up to much. Um, so I went on that whole looking for the meaning of life type search. So, Have you found it? Yeah. Okay. Care to share? <laughs> <laughs> we, we may as well get to, yeah, get to the, uh, the, the end quickly and then we can work our way back. <laughs> The perfection of the present moment is both the path and the goal of life, I would say. And it's our attitude, our presence that makes a present moment perfect. Okay. I get that, but there's a huge allure to the tantalizing potential of the future Mm -hmm. and the incredible lessons of the past. So how does one stay present when there are all those treasures out there? 
And that's the best question because <laughs> it's so true because <laughs> there's so much we want to do. There's so much ambition and, and love for activity and building and making a difference. And, and I'm, that's the problem with spirituality. It has this image of it's only about now. We'll forget the past, which is a disaster. We will throw away the future and we kind of stumble <laughs> from moment to moment with any, without any kind of direction. And I think that's so false. That's interesting because my, my expectation around spirituality is it's very deeply rooted in the future. Is that just a Judeo-Christian, uh, lapsed Catholic, survive the Christian brothers uh, kind of perspective? Yeah, you mean like he- heaven is another place, another time. Like when I die, if I'm good, then I'll get to... Well, the, 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 the concept of an afterlife, as opposed to life being renewed, I suspect has uh, colours one's perspective quite dramatically in this context. Yeah. I think there's, for me, there's always two teachings, the outer teaching, which is kind of like the Ten Commandments or the Four Noble Truths, where follow these and you'll be a good human. You know, be nice, don't kill people, don't lust after your neighbor's wife. Do that and there's a promise of something better for you later on. Ultimately, I think the inner teaching of all religions, all faith, of all spirituality is, is not is there life after death, but is there life before death. That seems to me to be a much healthier perspective. But my exposure to a lot of people, let's say, rather than the teachings, is that there's an awful lot of dogma that causes people to be blinded to respect others. Rather, you know, we, we tend to alienate or we, we tend to categorize and pigeonhole. Oh, yeah. And judge for not being a I true judge. believer. Yeah. Even amongst our group, well, she's less than because she's not doing it the way I think she should do. <laughs> there's, there's countless ways of, of well, you can see it in the world right now, splitting us into us and them. And, it, uh, casting my mind back many decades now, when I was studying university, I spent a little bit of time studying Sufism. <laughs> and there's a wonderful concept in there to try and explain the melancholy sound of the reed flute. And the neigh, the the flute, sounds so sad because it's uh, mourning, it's being cut from its family and from where it belongs. Mm -hmm. And it's yearning to get back there. And in some other philosophies, we're, we're told that we're born perfect and then we unlearn how to be naturally ourselves. And it seems that there's a huge thirst to try and find direction. Why is it so difficult? Because I think our teachers aren't, aren't very switched on. <laughs> that makes and by, sense. And by what I mean by teachers is, is really our parents, our physical school, college course teachers, because they're saying work hard, achieve the next thing, and then you'll feel complete, satisfied. You will remember who you are. That whole idea of consumerism is you buy this, that's, that's a slice of heaven. <laughs> I, I love the quote in your book, um, the Edgar Rice Burroughs quotes, where a billionaire comes along and he's told that, uh, no, it's Joseph Heller, isn't it? The writers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Well, you tell the story. It's probably better coming from <laughs> 
<laughs> funny thing was I heard it this morning and I've just gone in one ear and out the other, but it's essentially the two writers, Joseph Heller and the guy who wrote Catch. Catch-22 was Heller. Heller. Yeah. Anyway, two writers. <laughs> They're having this extraordinary party at this billionaire's house with and dancing girls and incredible food and, and just the whole lot. And one of the, one of them's teasing the other other writer, saying, "Well, do you know this guy made more money in a single day than your book sold in its entire lifetime?" <laughs> the other writer turned to him and said, "Well, I will have I have something he will never have, and that is enough." It's really interesting because as I've grown older, I've realised that I do have enough switch, hmm. and it's not settling because it's the pursuit of the material has become subordinate to the pursuits of many other aspects, personal developments, uh, spiritual and so on. So I'm really curious, how, how does one shortcut having to go through decades of idiocy and scar tissue? Is there some formula or I'm not suggesting a magic bullet, but a process or a pathway? I think it comes back to the, the perfection of the present moment and, and realizing that the times where we were most effective, where we were most alive, where we were completely absorbed in was, was when we were completely absorbed in the moment. And maybe that's cooking. Maybe that's a building a project. Like we're just so wrapped up in it when you're out kayaking, when you're in a movie, a great movie, you, you don't even know that you're watching it. You're actually in it. And realizing that if those are the greatest moments of your life, then perhaps you can recreate that by absorbing yourself in the present moment as you are. So how have you translated those moments of flow that you would have got from skiing or kayaking into your current life? Just that finding, letting now be enough. So realizing when there's nothing else I can do, I'm doing the dishes. I'm cleaning my boy's bum, cleaning his nappy. <laughs> I have to do the task. <laughs> I can run away from my responsibility. That's always an option. But if I, if I want to take care of the people around me, take care of my life, then there are certain things I have to do. I can whine and complain and resist and wish I was somewhere else. I can hope for someone to come save me. <laughs> or I can completely drop all those stories and just really immerse myself in the action, in the, the presence that I can bring to the simple act of, of making a piece of toast or uh, washing the car. You know? So really, really, and I'm so for saying, I'm so for people saying no to the stuff that they really don't want to do. I think we put up with too much that we don't want to do. But given the relationships that we have, really absorbing ourselves in the moment that we find ourselves in and not wishing it was different. So it's simple to say, but so difficult to do, to let go. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think Buddha was bang on the money when he described this attachment as the route to all misery. And would you mind expanding on that? Attachment, expectation, judgment—you <laughs> can you can add a shopping list to that, right? But yeah, it, it's that it's that idea that who I am or where I am is not good enough, and so that 
also drives ambition, which is goes back to an earlier question, right? I, I want more. But there's a whole world of difference between wanting more and realizing that takes time to build and it's a, a journey <laughs> and needing more, needing something different because when I have that, then I will feel complete. It's coming from a place of this moment is complete, I'm complete, and yet there's more to come. So I'd like to take a trip over to the dark side for a moment. <laughs> what does the absence of that completeness create in a life? Addiction. To drug, sex, rock and roll, money, prestige, reputation, all of these things. Because we think if I have this, if I'm on the front cover of Rolling Stone, of Time magazine or whatever, <laughs> I don't even know if these magazines still exist, but that will make me feel worthy or alive or complete. And so many Hollywood stars get into that trap, right? I need to be richer and more famous. I need to be everywhere. And then I'll feel a certain way. Well, do you, you, get, you get the same in business. Oh, yeah. yeah. The pursuit of a bigger round of funding mm -hmm. rather than creating a, big, uh, a better, more sustainable business mm. that serves people, planet, and profit that uh, creates a great environment for the community and where people get used. So again, when you're working with your clients around their meditation, their personal journey, how do you get them to appreciate the here and now and be able to let go of the past and not worry about the future? Well, it's a practice. I mean, how do you get better at tennis? You, you've got to sit there with a ball machine or a fellow tennis player and, and just gently hit the balls back with more and more force, with more and more skill, the more you do it. And it's the same thing. How, how do you become more present? Well, you get into your body and it becomes something you can use the breath or mantras or various meditation tricks, but it's really about dropping into the moment that you find yourself in giving up the stories of what if and what you did wrong and or nostalgia for the high life that was that happened last weekend or last summer. And it's really about, okay, how can I pay attention to who I am right now in this moment? And the more you do that, and part of it's the making that a priority to practice that, to become it, the easier it becomes, the easier it is to let go, so to speak, of the past, of the future. Okay, so how do we then balance the drive and desire to find our own purpose and direction, whilst also uh, building a career or a life of substance, is there a way to find a happy medium and maintain a full-on existence where you are enjoying every moment? Yeah, I, I think it's it's very possible. I think it's necessary. I mean... The Alcoholics Anonymous have that beautiful prayer, you know, grant me the serenity to accept that which I cannot change. Uh, and, and traditionally that's known, that's the spiritual world. But, but they go on, they say, give me the courage to change the things that I can. And so often we're sitting on the fence or not having those difficult conversations or not making those difficult decisions. And then the, the, the crucial part of the whole prayer is, but give me the wisdom to know the difference. And I think when you get present and when you, you get more sensitive to 
what the moment needs, but to what you need on a, on a much, much deeper level. You can recognize when you're living a life of compromise. And it's like, ah. and so you, you kind of get a, a bit of a kick up the bum. It's like, come on, mate, you've got to have the courage to do something here, to do something that's of value to you. And maybe you have the kind of career that gives you the sort of the fun tickets so that you can devote all the rest of your energy and, and efforts to that building or making that difference. Maybe it's quitting the whole shebang and saying, no, I've got to, I've got to set out on my own here. I've got to really, so to speak, follow my heart, um, follow my gut. But it's up to the individual, but I don't think they will truly find that path unless they tap into that source of wisdom that is already within us. It really is a case of it's always speaking, but we're hardly ever listening. Oh, now I'm torn because I've got three pathways that I can go down. So let's pick on listening first of all. How do I turn down the noise so I can hear what that wiser voice is telling me? Yeah, it hits the importance of, of slowing down, even stopping regularly throughout your day. You know, so many go-getters are just all go, 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 from dusk to dawn. Dusk to dawn, dawn to dusk. <laughs> yeah. They never take the time to stop to get that condor viewpoint to really tune in and go, hang on, am I, am I doing this the way that I want to, or am I just chasing the next shiny object? It, it, is, it is a case of practice, time and space. We need to nurture that sense of I have enough, I am enough, and this is where I want to go. In a world of deadlines, how does one culture patience? You know, I think it's, it's something to do with fear. And the fear of missing off, missing out, the fear of what will people think of me if I if I let them down, if I screw up, if I make a mistake. This fear of what happens if I don't stay on top of my email list 24-7. It's something to do with conquering fear of I need to look after the priorities. If I give time to that which truly nurtures me, then I have more energy, more clarity, more wisdom. Um, I do the things that I'm proud of better. But what will people think? I know, I know. <laughs> but but the people that think different are the ones who are, you know, in the so-called rat race. <laughs> just going, just following the next rat along the maze. And it's really stepping back from it saying, hey, hang on, I, I don't want to do this. Or I do want to do this, but I want to do it with full knowledge and full wisdom and, and play the cards as I want to play them rather than as the rest of the rats are playing. It's so interesting because the power of the status quo, the magnetic draw, it is another really important pull in people's lives, even when they recognize that a change is necessary. Hmm. We recognize a change is necessary. I can't exclude myself. And yet the allure of the better future has to be so much stronger than just do nothing. Stick with what you've got. Stay with what's familiar. Don't, don't rattle the, any cages. Don't rock the boat. And why is it that we find that separation so hard? You know, I think it's just, I mean, looking at my daughter who's just started school and it's already a beginning of this is the way that you do things. Here's the truth. It's outside of yourself. 
and it, it, there are it's, it's most certainly are experts and 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 people you want to orientate towards and, and get their knowledge get their experience but so often we solely follow everybody else and i think it begins just an early age that whole tribe mentality too of these are my people and it doesn't really matter what they're saying just as long as they accept me. this is the goal this is the thing that everyone says is valuable so i'm just going to go for it i think really it's it's never stopping and actually saying how do i want my life to be and i think that was one of the reasons why i became a monk simply because i saw so many of my friends dying or, or people i knew to wave to down the street they'd have an accident or they'd be in you know kayaking or flying a plane or whatever and, and the next day they were gone and being at a young early 20s and realizing that i didn't have forever i had to really get clear on what I wanted my life to be about and sharpish because I didn't know how much time I had left. But maybe that's part of it too. People think we have forever. I'm going to work till I I make my first million and then I'll retire. (laughs) That never seems to happen. It's interesting. My near-death experiences have been defining moments in my life where I've had to reevaluate and reprioritize. Again, I think it's a scar tissue that gives you the wisdom. Unfortunately, youth is wasted on the young and <laughs> wisdom wasted on the old. <laughs> it's a huge cosmic joke. Okay, really interesting. So if we think about the skill of listening to ourselves, in order to be able to truly surgically and empathetically listen to another human being, how do you do that without allowing the voice in your head to make you think about the next question or wait for the moment where you can fill the silence? For me, it's, it all comes back to that mother skill of being present, which doesn't mean pushing the internal dialogue away, but separating yourself from it. A little bit like the difference between being in the washing machine, so you're consumed by, oh, I need to say this next, versus stepping back and you can witness it all from outside the glass. It's still going on, but you're much higher and drier and you're able to ignore it to a greater degree and actually listen to understand, as they say, rather than listen to respond. That actually describes a flow state. So that's the listening in flow. Right. Ah, right. That's an epiphany for me then. It's the case of, of, of listening, of really listen. If you're listening to an audiobook, really listen. <laughs> rather than trying to do three other things at once. When your partner comes in and wants to tell you about their day, you, you stop and you, you really pay attention. Like you, do it, you do it when it's easy so you can do it when it's needed, right? like any practice. But it's really, really tuning into what's here. If you're tuning into what's here and being truly in the moment, then that necessitates letting go of your excuses and coming out from behind your masks. And that level of vulnerability, let alone self-awareness, is fleeting at best and scarce. And for many of us, bloody terrifying, looking in the ugly mirror. (laughs) Yeah. How can you assure someone that actually it's a relatively safe place and there is a soft landing the other end, or can't you? (laughs) 
I, I love that metaphor of, of the caterpillar in the cocoon versus the butterfly with wings. Do you know, it, it may be safe but inside a cocoon, but you soon outgrow it. It soon restricts you and holds you back from actually really flying. And sure, it's scary to break out of that, the safety of the nest, but you have wings to fly, so to say. But you're right. It means honestly showing up to the moment, regardless of, of how people may f- see you. It's ditching the certainty of your plans and your expectations for the uncertainty of what's in front of you. It's, it's changing your whole attitude to what you hold to be true versus to what you know is true, what you can experience is true, which is this, what's, this, what's right in front of you this moment. But throughout life, experiences taught me normally the hard way mm-hmm. that if you do pretty much the opposite of what the herd tells you to do or is doing, it's a slightly more difficult path to begin with, but generally leads to much better outcomes. So again, I have to ask the question, why, as a species, do we seem to be drawn to the precipice and to look at the wrong end of every problem and to spend our time fixating on lagging indicators and needless shit that doesn't matter? and uh, has little or no lasting consequence or meaning, and be distracted by all of that. Why do we do that as a herd? Well, maybe it's something to do with safety, the safety of the comfort zone, the safety of what we've done and what somebody else has done and proven that, you know, if if you you follow this set of rules, you, you won't mess up and people won't laugh at you. The safety of, because so many people tell me it's selfish. It's selfish to meditate. And yet, when you've got a big fat smile on your face, why? There's something about needing to look after everybody else first, make sure they're okay, and then you come a distant last. This is where people must be up against so many contradictory views because we're taught work hard, study hard, get a good job. Yet the people that we see mostly succeeding probably dosed it at school, found clever ways of bypassing the rigmarole, the manual work, the old way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And they're minted and we're jealous or we're judging ourselves. Because I think that's another huge handicap, that punitive, judgmental inner voice. And the the dichotomy of being told, look after yourself first or um, take care of others first. Where is the balance? Surely context matters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you see it all the time with mums, especially, (laughs) because they they go run around, run themselves ragged looking after everybody else and then get so resentful. You know, I'm doing this whole Christmas for you and you guys aren't appreciating. You're just sitting there getting drunk. (laughs) (laughs) But if they stop and said, hey, what do you want from Christmas? <laughs> It'd be a different story. I'm sure all of you did fuck off and go home. <laughs> yeah. I want to spend it with you guys, but not with you guys. <laughs> and you know what? Let's get a KFC because that would be so much nicer for me. I wouldn't have to do dishes and, and everybody would be happy. <laughs> but all these vegetarian daughters. Exactly. There you go. We'll get some carrot, <laughs> carrot sticks and hummus for them. That'll be fine. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, all the things of this is the way it must be, and this is the way I should be. That that word should, and you're right. All the mavericks and the the, the people really that we respect are the ones that well are mavericks, the ones that threw away the should. And, but again, I think they are so few and far between the success stories, and we forget the ninety-seven to ninety-nine percent that died on the rocks. <laughs> And so, again, you know, this delusion of what success is Mm -hmm. and that it's all about this material growth. And I'm I'm capitalist through and through, but I I believe that it should benefit all the parties. I think we should come into a negotiation looking for what we have in common. I think we should be looking for mutually assured success. I think along the way, we should be gaining lots and lots and lots of tiny micro agreements so that at the end, we don't have one big agreement that we have to try and bridge. And we need to be honest with one another. But again, whilst we're taught a moral code, almost everything in life and the people who seem to succeed seem to get by by not following the rules. So what's the message we should be taking to our young people, to our kids in school? Yeah. Well, you're also, we're also talking about those that seem to have fame, fortune, who have made a noticeable difference on a world scale. And I think it's important to recognize that that's not success for everybody. That, that sometimes just chasing that is, is following our rut, that I should be like Elon Musk or uh, Gandhi. You know, I should be being interviewed on Oprah Winfrey. Whereas you can bring it back and how can I make a difference to the people around me? How can I make a difference to myself right here and right now? How can I, given the circumstances of my life, given the cards have been dealt right here, right now, how can I play these cards in a way that brings me greater satisfaction and joy? That I can go home at the end of the day and hold my head up rather than, as you say, a mutually assured success uh, rather than crushing and destroying and elbowing people whether in the boardroom or or off the tube it's what do i want to do but how do i want to do it i I was introduced to a a concept of finite versus infinite games a few years ago and what what i love about the whole infinite gameplay is that your sole purpose is to keep the game going it makes the pie bigger for everyone and everyone gets a bigger slice. Because uh, what I'm curious about is given your perspective on life and also you know, your history, when you look at people who are super competitive, what are you seeing in terms of the areas that they're being fulfilled, but also the gaps? It's so different. I mean, if you talk to someone like Roger Federer, who when he was asked, when are you going to retire? You've won everything under the sun. You've set all the records. When when are you going to call it quits? He laughs and goes, why would I quit this? I'm enjoying it too much. And he seems from the outside like one of the kindest guys in the world. He genuinely wants to help other people, mainly so he can have a better class of competitors perhaps, (laughs) versus those competitors who – who kind of aggression is their key word and they want to crush and destroy and stomp really to prove not so much, 
well, really to prove something about themselves. I think that they feel like they're lacking in some respect. And if they destroy someone else, they can make themselves feel better. So I think it depends on the competitor you're talking about. Well, I'm curious because this ties in to how we view problems as well. Because I think more often than not, and it comes back to our conversation earlier around patients, I do a lot of work with founders and ambitious folk, and they always seem to be in this unholy rush. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got a timetable. But actually, when you question the timetable as to whether the deadlines are real or movable and what the consequences are, often other things are higher priority. Mm-hmm. And because they're not taking the time to breathe and to reflect and to step back, they don't have that perspective. They don't have all those eyes on the problem. So who do you turn to when you need additional eyes on a problem? My wife is great. <laughs> She's wonderful because she knows what's who I want to be and, and what's really important to me. We've agreed upon what what different projects we've individually got, but how that joins up to a life together. And so she's she's always a first point of call. But I have mentors and teachers and coaches as well to to really bounce things off and and to remind me of, I mean, it really all the time they point the finger back at my own heart and say, okay, actually, stop. What what are the crucial factors here? What are your priorities? Where are you paying too much attention to the minutiae? Where are you having a, an attachment or an expectation or a story that simply may not be true? They're always taking me, like you say, just taking me back that step. Hang on, Anne. Given what you say you want to be, the life you want to live, what you want to make a difference in, is this contributing or removing from it? Or the way that you're doing it, is it removing from it? Hmm. And you can't do any of that when you're, you're busy and running around like a headless chicken, like you're saying. It just doesn't, you don't, doesn't even enter your mind. So in terms of the questions we ask of ourselves, coming back full circle, what are the questions that you'd recommend people ask themselves on a daily basis? I love the one, where in my life am I compromising? Because that question automatically says, oh, well, what are my priorities? What are, what are the things that I say are the most important, but I'm not actually doing? What are the things that I haven't actually admitted are the most important things, but I'm not actually giving any time to? I love that question because it cuts away all the chat. Just from that, you, you get a sense of, is what I'm telling myself true? Or is it simply a story that I've picked up from my parents, from my teachers, from my colleagues? Is this actually a fact or is it a, just a complete myth, a fairy tale? And how do I know the difference? That's a good question. How do you know the difference? <laughs> I, In this day and age, that would be a fabulous skill to know. I was talking to someone last night who's very successful, and yet she's constantly afraid of the future, constantly creating these scenarios of doom and disaster. Like from the f- smallest of information, of you know the death rates of COVID have, have gone up today, <laughs> creates this this incredible. Oh, if this continues, and then there's going to be another lockdown, and my do, 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 do you know this this future is created from this tiniest little seed? Well, catastrophizing is, I think, to some degree part of the job description. 
that comes with being a leader or a senior executive because you've got to plan for these things Mm -hmm. because you don't want to be the one who failed to plan for disaster when it strikes. And no one thanks you for it because lots of other things will go wrong. But the, the, the lives that you saved or the careers that you saved, the jobs you saved, no one will thank you for it. And her case, in many cases, as the great Seneca once said, why suffer twice? It's not just planning. It's not just what is the worst possible outcome. It's, as you say, catastrophizing, letting the drama and the, well, the, the whole suffering of the situation become. And, and well, I think, yeah. Cy um, uh, Wakeman uh, was one of my guests a couple of weeks back, and she said that the average employee suffers two and a half hours of drama per working day. At least. And then they go home. <laughs> And then they bring it home and then they develop it there. This, again, is so symptomatic of what we know is good for us and what we're being told to do and the role models that we have, the examples, all that kind of stuff, how we're being measured, compensated, recruited, hired, onboarded, failed to coach, because I don't think coaching is happening. So. If you're somebody who's leading an organization and you decide to make these kind of changes, how soon do you see the ripple effect, the cascade effect, working throughout the rest of the organization? Well, I think it depends on on if the people are interested in becoming that similar difference that you're taking on. You know, being a role model is is, is wonderful, but I think there's, you've got to sell it to them too. Because we all have habits and beliefs and programs that, are, that would say different. Just because the boss is doing it one way, it's all right for him or her. <laughs> but I've got to, you know, <laughs> I've got to crack on like my, my last boss showed me how to do. You know, Gandhi famously said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And, and that's incredible because that speaks loud. But you have to ha- have some conversations. You have to almost physically tie people down and say, stop, take a moment, step back. You have to, you have to create a different culture. Uh, and how long that takes, who knows? It's an ongoing thing, I imagine. Well, certainly in my experience it is. And it also requires regular practice and regular reinforcement. Yeah. And the practice needs to be deliberate, intentional, perfect practice because just going around the golf course and continuing to hack the way I do uh, means that you become really proficient at finding water, long grass and sand. Oh, and trees. <laughs> Getting it bounced back towards you. <laughs> My wife and I were playing golf once and I was stood behind her and the ball actually came at me when she was driving. I don't know how she did it. I think it was just a vindictive swipe. And you can put all the you can put people on courses and you can give them the time and the space, but if they don't know why am I doing this, it's it's a complete waste of time. So that then speaks to a really important question around uh, leadership and vision. How does one present as a fully mindful leader with a clear vision in a world that is full of people with their hair on fire? <laughs> I I mean, it's where the rubber meets the road. 
It's where your practice and your personal development and, and all of these things, you decide to, to be someone revolutionary, to not follow the herd and say, you know, well, I don't want to live my life like that. That looks like a, a recipe for drama and suffering. I want personally to do things differently for me. And then if my company benefits, then great, wonderful. I think you've got to be selfish with it because it's too easy to just because 99% of everybody else is doing it like that. It's too easy to do the same thing, hoping you get the result that you want, which is rarely the case. This whole piece around mutually assured success is about finding common ground. In a family, if you don't find common ground, one or other person will find themselves either resentful or hard done by or hurt or whatever. And then you end up in a point scoring contest that never ends well. In business, you have the same kind of thing where people are trying to score points or they're seeking approval of the boss or Hmm. they want to be top of the pile. But at what price? One of my favorite questions is who pays the negative price for your positive payoff? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think we ask that question often enough. But equally, the flip side of that question is, what are you compromising in your life that's making you sad or resentful? Which I think is a healthier question. I think everybody not only enjoys things, but performs better when they're actually, they feel like they're in some sort of control of their own destiny. <laughs> As I get older, I recognize that the things I actually have control over are exceptionally limited. And I can delude myself, but that doesn't make it any truer. Well, it could be as simple as making sure that every morning you wake up and go for a nice walk in the forest. You know, I I can control this. And here I am (laughs) making a little bit of progress in terms of my health, in terms of my just enjoyment and getting out there. Maybe I can't control my job, but it's recognizing that I can control my attitude to it. I can be nice to the people around me. I can be helpful and and have a service mind. I can have a generosity of spirit there. I can see where I'm being aggressive to somebody over here, and, and maybe I can help somebody in a different way. I can see the judgments and the expectations, and I'm constantly running rather than sitting back and, and appreciating who they are or, or, or the situation that I am in. You know, I think there's a, in terms of what we can control, you're dead right. There's very little that we can control, and yet there's so much we can. And we tend to focus on what we can't control, <laughs> on what we want to be different, and yet don't give enough time or energy into making sure that we put into place those things that we can control. I'm certainly seeing through this conversation that What we tend to do, I think, from what I'm hearing, is abdicate control because it's outside of our control. And that absolves us of responsibility for control over our response and our behavior. Or the other thing is, is fight so hard and resist what we can't control because if that was different, then I could live my life in the way that I wanted it to. You know, if this traffic was gone, if this government would only respond differently to COVID, then I could do the things that I want to do and say that are important to me. 
So sometimes that resistance against an immovable force is a, is a very good strategy for not taking responsibility for your choices. Well, I, I see so many of us, and I, I'm guilty of it too, that we fabricate a narrative that allows us to live with ourselves within the framework of whatever disastrous choices we've made along the way. And I think you're touching on some really important issues around this whole idea of a service mindset, because service does not mean servitude. Mm. And when you know we, we enter into a partnership or an alliance or we go into business with people, there has to be mutual benefit. And if you wouldn't do that deal a hundred times in a row, why are you doing it the once? If you wouldn't make that decision or you wouldn't want to live with the guilt of what you just said to somebody a hundred times in a row, why are you doing it? Yeah, Powerful litmus test. Okay. Um, you're a very good listener, by the way. Um, so I've been, thoroughly enjoyed being interviewed by you. Um, <laughs> We're coming to time now, so let's start thinking. As you look back over your life, and if you had, and this is one of those what-if questions, I'm afraid, Mm. but if you had a golden ticket and you could go back, what one bit of advice would you whisper in the idiot 23-year-old's ear that he'd have probably ignored but would have benefited from sooner? I think it would it would be it, it's all going to be okay. What you your struggle and your grasping for something, it's going to come. Just keep keep walking, keep moving, keep keep listening, <laughs> keep being true. Interesting. So, in terms of things that people can watch or listen to or read that will help them become more aware find direction, derive their own real priorities. Are there any particular books or podcasts or whatever that you'd suggest people do? And then any practices that you'd suggest uh, people maybe start adopting? Well, for me, practices, I I think meditation or mindfulness practice, I, I think it's essential to really get to grips with knowing who you are, knowing how your mind works, being able to tune into that inner source of wisdom, to be able to stop, put the brakes on and step back and hang on, am I actually driving in the right direction? To be able to focus on exactly what you want to focus on effortlessly without doubt and fear and catastrophizing, swamping you. I think the practice of mindfulness and meditation has is, is got to be to give you the, the physical recharge, the energy to go again. It's, it's got so many different benefits. So that would be for me for practice. Absolutely. If you can't, if you physically can't sit still, then something like yoga or Tai Chi or some sort of more present moment awareness focused martial art so that you can do something <laughs> while uh, meditating. Okay. And anything that you'd suggest people read? Well, one of the, my favorite books I picked up early on was a guy from a Jesuit priest called Anthony DeMello. And it's called awareness. I, I love his stuff. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because he, he doesn't hold any punches. He says, you know, stop being a monkey on a chain. Stop being jerked around by everything, every emotion, every thought that's going through you. Cut those chains and start living. 
He, he was the one that said that the, the question shouldn't be, is there life after death, but is there life before death? We're so worried about a future moment, we forget the one that we're living in. And so he's a, like this loving, humorous slap in the face, <laughs> which I, I love. Given how long potentially you might be dead for, hmm. and the one thing you are absolutely assured of is you've got this one crack at it, it seems sinful to waste it. And you, you look at all the studies of people on their deathbed saying their greatest regrets was not falling flat on their face, but not trying. The people in their older age just going, man, I, I really wish I took, took that shot. I really wish I took a chance, which means uh, to me that a lot of people are, are not doing that. And, and that's not that's the kind of thing I want. It's interesting. I've, I think people confuse the difference between making a sacrifice and taking a risk. Hmm. because sacrificing is going from a better place to a worse place. Whereas risking is going from a worse place to a better place with the potential that you might lose some or all of what you've got. Hmm. And people confuse the two and then do neither <laughs> and end up sacrificing in the end because they play the safe bet, which is actually the most dangerous because the one thing you can be guaranteed of is change. Hmm. The other thing you can be guaranteed of is that the only place of certainty really is within you, is within this present moment. So we constantly look for some kind of external security. You know, when my life looks like this or, or when this stops happening, when I get my ducks lined up in a row. But as you said, life has changed. The only place for true stability is your alignment with the present moment. This is the only place you know for certain. It's the only place that is secure. It's the only place where you actually have enough, where everything when you do from this, it's, 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 you do it because you want to, because it excites you, because it, it lights a fire rather than that you need it. I need a certain thing to happen because then it will make me feel secure, satisfied, happy. Interesting. Okay. Well, Arjuna, how can people get hold of you? Hmm. Well, I'm on the social medias trying to make them just slightly more positive and awakening <laughs> at Arjuna Rishai on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook <laughs> or ArjunaRishai.com. Are you on LinkedIn as well? I am. Excellent. Okay. So if any of you want to get hold of Arjuna, then please drop him a line or contact me and I'll put you in touch. Yeah, please do. Arjuna, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You're an incredible host, so thank you. It's been fun. Very kind of you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, and goodness knows, if you haven't, you're probably dead, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Tag somebody who could take a chill pill or maybe needs a little bit of a moment to reflect on what they're doing with their life. And uh, in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, then please email me, marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. Stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.